You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is Chesidish Apsak, and I am dealing with uh, today with someone, and you can see his picture here on our screen, Rav Moshe Klios. Um, Clears was a clear was a clear uh, was a uh, city which is now in Belarus. I don't know how his grandfather Reb Nissen uh, came to be Ola Teretz Yisrael. Uh, it's possible that he was from influence of the the Goyins Talmidim. It's possible that he came and joined the group of Chassidim. There were Ola Teretz Yisrael in the generation after the Baal Shem Tov. It's interesting that in the beginning of the 19th century, both the Chassidish world, uh, at least part of it, and some students of the Vilna Gaon understood that it was crucial to rebuild and generate an, an important presence in Eretz Yisrael. Now, there's been a lot of negative things written about the Chassidim and the Pirushim who've gone went there to Israel um, I, I, in terms that they this was only a way to satisfy their desire for living a life of holiness. I don't even think it's negative if that was the reason, but dependent on the support of communities in Chutzloritz. Um In other words, this was what they called the Chaluka Hevra. I don't believe that that was supposed to be the be-all, end-all. Yes, there was definitely going to be uh, the group that would live Altairus HaKodesh. But I know about um, Rav Kleders, I know that Rav Moshe, his grandfather who came, ended up working. And he worked along with his father, Rav Meir. They worked in Tzfas. And even though there were definitely Talmide HaGoyim that were there, um, that were basically learning and being supported by monies. He's, his family was working as people who actually tended the cemetery in Svas. Not only tended the cemetery, but were actually from the Chaitzev HaKvarim. They were people that were known as the, the, the people who dug the graves there. Now, uh, they were known as great uh, pious people. There, there is definitely this idea that they, who knows what sort of tzaddik nister they were and how much they learned, but it, they weren't just living off of uh, the monies that were coming in. I think it's important to remember that in the period of the early 19th century, uh, the Yishuvan Eretz Yisrael was extremely poor no matter where you were. Um, and people did try. It wasn't just that they were living and expecting money to be coming in. And it's important to, to note that this man uh, lived and was raised in a in an avir of extreme poverty. And his whole life, he really hardly took anything. In fact, he was very nizar in, 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 in anything having to do with wealth. Um, he, he really believed that um, it was the type of thing that could be like a poison that could actually affect you, the desire for money, the desire to have. And um, it, it, this shows up in terms of his uh, his Hanhogas and his Piskei Halocha as well. 
Now, how did he come to be a Pesach? How did he come to be someone of such significance? Well, um, he was born on Zion Oder. And similar to the great Rav Moshe Feinstein, whose his father, was the Tzaddik Rav David, gave him a name. Uh, Rav Meir, who was the father of uh, Rav Moshe, said, okay, Zion Oder. And somehow he knew there was something different about this child. And he seemed it, it, as like many of these Gedolim stories, you know, you could sort of discount them when you hear uh, that they sound so similar. But there's a ring of truth that in, in the records that I have read about Rav Meisha, um, it, it was clearly, um, uh, you know, pushing himself to the utmost to be a uh, to learn as as much he could as much as he could possibly learn. Um, and Tzfas, of course, was a city that still had Chachamim and Sadikim, um, and his father and grandfather recognized that he was going to be someone quite different than they were. That somehow, although he would definitely have the modesty and, and the, of that life, in fact, he always said that if people understood what it meant to learn what did it mean to learn under pressure, they, they, they wouldn't desire to be able to learn like, you know, Rav Meir, um, like Rav Meir Shapiro said, that, you know, you had to have a yeshiva where the, the students uh, could spread out that the yeshiva shouldn't be uh, it shouldn't be you have to have a yeshiva that's he, he learned that Mishnah and Ovos is a, with a question mark when the Mishnah says you just eat a piece of bread dipped in salt and you eat wa- and you drink water that was used to dyeing uh, D-Y-E-I-N-G some of the plants which was like sort of like really rancid water Rav Meir uh, Shapiro said no of course not that's not the way to learn Torah, um, and that was an that was an attitude and idea that, of course, gain, has gained a lot of steam. Um, these chevron, of course, they didn't have much of a choice, uh, but the, the these Jews who were who grew up and developed in Eretz Yisrael in the situations that were of of, of the of the greatest poverty were able. Some of them were able to tell us that that there was a greatness and an enjoyment that they got of learning that they wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. And I have no doubt that the type of, his quality of learning was indeed so great. The reason why I know this to be true is because at the age, uh, right after he, I'm going to get to that in a second, uh, but soon after his marriage, uh, he traveled to Europe, and I'm going to explain why uh, soon, um, and he received smicha from the uh, one of the greatest of the Lithuanian rabbonim, and that was the Aderes, Rabbi Leo David Rabinowitz Tumim. And I believe this is actually what I'm showing you now is the smicha that the Aderes gave him. Aderes was not known to give a lot of smichas. And you can see... Um, that he wrote here, and this is from a copy of what the Adaris wrote. Um, and this one, when the Adaris was in Mir, and he said, This Rov who came from Eretz Yisrael, he's Roy, and, and, and the aura that, that, he, that, that his crown is also proper. I can see who he is. He's brilliant. 
He's learned a lot. He's an expert in all areas of Torah. And this is what the, um, the Adaris wrote to him when he was a, quite a young man. This was his smicha. Now, if, I'll tell you, the Adaris, of course, eventually became Rav in Yerushalayim. He was very famously the father-in-law of Rav Kook. Uh, Rav, Rav Kleris had a, uh, Kleris had a, a connection to Rav Kook as well, a very strong connection, which we'll talk about hopefully, as yesterday was Rav Cook's yard site. And that's sort of what got me thinking about, about, about their relationship. But as a young man, he was extremely accomplished. What changed his life, though, and was one of the reasons why he went to meet the Adaris in Europe, why did he, why was he, why did he leave uh, Eretz Yisrael to go there? It's because he um, was uh, <laughs> There lived in in Tzvas a some slonimer chasidim. Now, many of you who are listening and who will listen to this are very familiar with slonim uh, because you've heard of the nesivas ashalom, right? The nesivas ashalom is one of was the was was the uh, slonimer rebbe, the son-in-law of the of the previous slonimer rebbe. Um, Rabbi Paul, you and I, of course, uh, studied under uh, in the yeshiva that had a lot of Slonimer influence. Of course, the Weinbergs, uh, who were relatives of 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 the original Slonimer Rebbe. Um, in fact, was he, there, was he in Svat? Uh, was that family in Svat and Tiberi at that time? So, so the the Weinbergs um, understood this, the first Slonimer Rebbe, who was known as the um, the Bal Yisoid Avoida, Rabbi Avrom. He understood that, and, and he knew this in the mid-19th century, that the continuation of their chassidus and the strength of their chassidus would be by establishing uh, strongholds in Eretz Yisrael. Um, and, and this was something over and above what happened in the, it's like the second wave of chassidim. The first wave came, they were students of the Baal Shem are students of students of the Baal Shem, students of the Magid. Uh, they came towards the end of the 18th century. In the mid-19th century, in other words, in the mid-1800s, there was another push by Chassidim to establish um, a, 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 a fortress, as it were, in Eretz Yisrael. And it was still difficult in Yerushalayim. Um, and there were many reasons for this. I mean, there was the Furman against uh, Jews, uh, Ashkenazi Jews living near Shalim, they were able to lift it uh, in the mid-19th century, the, the 20s and the 30s, and 1820s, 1830s, they were able, but it was it was not easy going uh, to be able to make it in Yerushalayim at the time. So Tveria and Svas, Svas and Tveria, the area in the north, became areas that certain Chassidim like, set their sights on. And some of the, and the Slonimer Chassidim uh, had gone, and they established themselves in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, Rav Kleris, Rav Moshe, this young man, became a chaver with one of the Slonim Achsidim and Svas, who thought that his sister would be a great shidduch for him. And this was a, a spitz Slonim Mishpacha. So Rav Moshe, at this point, uh, I'm sure he knew about Achsidus, really changed. And of course, he'd always been, for the first years of his life, as is shown by the Adaris's letter, 
a tremendous mass, a tremendous book, a person who learned Bedachus Banius. But what changes here is that he bought into completely the Hasidic Shadera Chachayim. And although the Rebbe was not there, the Rebbe was in Europe, uh, and the Rebbe was from Shmuel Weinberg, which of course was the name of our Rosh Hashiva in, in, or in, in, when we were in there, used to actually refer to him on son-in-law, was Rav Shmuel Yaakov, but this is from the same family. Rav Shmuel Weinberg, who was known as the Dvar Shmuel and was the Sonam was the Rebbe at the time, heard about this young man. Now, they, he moved to Tveria. And in Tveria, uh, which is where he stayed till the end of his life. And Tveri, of course, um, was a city that uh, uh, the, the Sephardim had a very strong presence there. And the Salonim Rechzidim really wore the, the, the strength of the Ashkenazi community, the old city of Tveri, and even beyond the walls of the old city of Tveri. Um, when Rav Moshe, uh came there, and was was a standout in learning, and people knew about him. Um, they knew that uh, the the people in the town knew that this was a type of malach. This person, he was a person that um, that that spent all of his time learning. He would leave his wife in the beginning of the week. I know this doesn't sound so great for our ears, and he would come back erev Shabbos, um, or he would learn in his own room. Um, he he became known as. For people, although he didn't want it, he was by Reich Menachovid, people understood who he was. The Slonim Rebbe heard about him as well. And the Slonim Rebbe sent a letter to his family, to him, that he should become the Melamed for uh, the Slonim Rebbe's son, who was in Eretz Yisrael. So the Slonim Rebbe's son became his Talmud. And he was like the older Chavrusa for the Slonim Rebbe son. Um, and that's what he was doing, sitting there learning in, in, in Tveria. Um, the son of Rebbe also asked him if he should come, and this was an amazing thing, to come to Chutzlaretz. He came to Chutzlaretz, and this is where, of course, he met the Aderas, and he met the, he had a number of hours of meetings with the son of Rebbe, and it was clear that he wasn't, he was going to follow the Derech HaChasidus completely. Uh, he learned a lot of Yisaitis from there. One of the Yisaitis, of course, was the, uh, and we talk about what makes a Chasidish Apaisik. Well, one of the ideas was that if you're a Rav, and if you're a Chasidish Apaisik, you're not going to be, your Rabbonus that you have isn't going to be bury you. It's not going to be Kaiveris by Leho, like the Gemara says, like Chazal say, because you're not the Baal. You recognize that you are a complete evid to your kehillah. In fact, you don't even consider yourself anything. You don't consider yourself anything. You know, if if you are if you are a baal, if you feel that oh I'm a rov, I have something, then that's going to be something that it could bury you because you can get caught up in who you are. But he he was mekabel to recognize, just like he had been raised with such poverty, just that he had learned with such Mesiras Nefesh, that his sense of being any sort of rov or teacher was nothing that he had at all. It was like the Anivas of Meishar Abenu. Um, he also was makabal, a number of Yisoidists from from Slonim and other Chesidisha uh, approaches. 
one of them was the the importance of ben um you know the uh he used to tell his children later that one of the things he accepted he got the idea from the from from the oil maxidus was that if you paskin if you're given to paskin a shaila and you end up being matir and Yisr. In other words, you said it was kosher and it was really treif. Well, <laughs> what did you do? You allowed someone to put something not kosher into their system. How geferwach that is. We have a number of, uh, of, 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 of asharis that we have from the Litvisha Welt and from the, 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 the Gedewe, even Ashkenaz, about how chomer that is how metamtam the levit is. And many people feel that, you know, the chassidim are even more crazy. You know, they would say, oh, look how machma they are. But the salonim chassidim actually had a different approach. And this was an approach that uh, Rav Meisha had, which was that, okay, you're matir and yisr. All right, what is it? It's a bein odom lemokim. But if it turns out that you paskin that that chicken is treif, when it's really kosher, then it's a bein odom <laughs> because that person will be able to eat it. The person's going to have to throw it away or, or sell it to a guy or do whatever he can with it. Peron Mochavero, we know, is not Nimchal with Yom Kippur. Peron Mochavero is even more Chomer. Um, and, and that was his approach. He was from, uh, in the years, and eventually, as I'm going to explain, when he becomes a, a Paisek, uh, he, was from the, the, he was from the incredible Yerei Hayro, anything to do with uh, anything to do with Chayshin Mishpat, anything to do with uh, paskening in a, 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 a Shaila in a Bezdin. Um, of course, which is for many people, it's the, you know, that's what you want, right? You want to be able to sit in front of a Dintaira and Paskin, this is where the money should go. Rav, Rav Meisha held that every Dayan, at least that's the way he felt, should should be Masna Meirosh, that this is only a Pshara. And that he would he would make sure that each party would be meichel in advance. There was once a situation where that the uh, there was a uh, a dintera that he was involved in, and um, he ended up paskening letayvas a, a certain almana, and she was quite uh, I don't know if she was destitute, and the person she paskin and he paskened against was a, quite a wealthy person. Who really was all right with the psak, and he gave, he paid the almana what she, what, what was, what Rav Moshe felt she needed. For weeks, he was ba'agmas nefesh, because he knows I'm mishpat and maybe he did something wrong. Even though people tried to mafais and tell him, but you did a chesed, he said, still, you know, this was a mishpat, and this was, it's possible that that that, that this money really didn't belong to her. And he felt for, for weeks he had that sort of pain. So he stayed away from, he tried to be mistaic from being the, the usual type of dayan in Shtot because he was afraid really from the, it was from the Yorei Oiro. Um, so it, it's, it's interesting, you know, how he develops into this Paisik. Because normally, you know, a Paisik is sort of like a surgeon. You see that from Rebel Yashif, for example. And you see that from Rav Moshe, that they have incredible courage. There was a certain zehirus a, a, a and a, a frumkeit, we would call it, and a, and a pachad that, that in some ways limited Rav Meisha, uh, but in other ways really magnifies his greatness, and, and, and it's the way I'm looking at him. Now, 
what happened? Um, he comes back from Europe, and the Slonim Rebbe gives him a job, not just to be the um, his 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 son's Rebbe, but the Slonim Rebbe has a vision, and the vision is is that there's going to be a great yeshiva again in Tveria. And there's always been some discussion as to the tziyun of Rav Meir Balanes. Many of you know about this, right? Some of you probably who are listening uh, have right near where you do Adlokas Neiros, you probably have a, uh, a pushka that says, you know, tziyun Rav Meir Balanes. Sfardim especially have this. Now, there, there has been for years a, and it might have come from the time of the Arizal, uh, a sense of where the kever of Rav Meir was, and that it was, and even though the Gemara says he, the Gemara talks about him dying in Chutzlaritz, um, it would seem from the Arizal that they brought him back to be buried, and it was right in Tveria somehow where where his kever is, the kever of Meir Balanes. Um, no nations would come in. Now, what did that mean, your menadif for a mayor Balanes? So the, the, the Slanim Rebbe said, what we're going to do is it's going to be a little bit outside of the city. There's going to be a yeshiva. And we're going to have a, a chevra learning there. And I'm going to show you a, a picture of what, what it looked like in that yeshiva in a minute. Because it wasn't just a bunch of small children that were there. Uh, and and, and the Slonimer felt we're going to be able to have people donate, and they're going to donate throughout the world for the Kupa Rameir Balanes, for the yeshiva, which is on the yeshivas Rameir Balanes, which meant that people would learn by his tziyun, that's where they would build the base medrash, and people would be learning there for hours and hours on, on all day, all day long. He chose for the Rosh Hashiva this young man. As, as the Miyasid of the yeshiva, Rav, Rav, Rav Moshe Kleris became the Rosh Yeshiva in Yeshiva's Or Torah, it was called. And this was a yeshiva that, again, they took it themselves, it took it very seriously. Um, and the way they learned there was not necessarily, um, some days they could spend uh, hours on one daf, maybe days. Other times they flew. Rav, Rav Moshe said, you've got to be Emes. Learning, you can't put it in a box. It's got to be truthful. Sometimes something takes hours and hours till you get it. And sometimes what you need to do is move quickly. Uh, he himself w- w- was in, in many ways understood that you had to be Mafalpel. You had to come up with uh, a Dover Kharif. But ultimately, he told he, his idea was that when you're learning and you stop and you start learning in a pilpal way, in a way that's not emes, you disconnect from God. The Torah's Hakadosh Baruch is emes. When your seichel starts speculating in a way that makes you feel good and sounds great, but you know probably doesn't align with the Rishonim or pro- with the sources properly, even though it sounds very good, and most times people feel, oh, by the chassidim, they're willing to say drush, and they're willing to introduce into the learning a sort of laissez-faire type of attitude. In his yeshiva, in yeshiva's ortaira, it was, you had to learn al-pms, because the rosh yeshiva, this young man who was coming into his own, Rav Moshe said that if it's not ms, then it's not taira. And even though you're playing around with ideas of Torah, as soon as you start being say to me, 
then you realize that you're disconnecting it from the Teres Hashem and you're just wasting your time. That's what the yeshiva was about. Um, and the Hasmada there was incredible. And he, of course, stayed there. His wife, uh, he, his first wife, Nebuch, died. And then even when he married his second wife, he would stay the whole week outside of town by the yeshiva. Um, and again, coming back on Thursday, late Thursday afternoon. This was his mahalach as a child, and this was the way he, he continued. Um, but there was a, uh, after the rov of Tveria, the, Ash- the person who was acting as Ashkenazi rov in Tveria passed on, it seemed natural that the Rosh Hashiva should become the rov. So the Rosh Hashiva in the yeshiva, right outside of Tveria, becomes the rov of Tveria as well. And he becomes, till, and that is the, the, as we know him. Um, they signed a contract with him. Um, he didn't want it, but they signed a contract with him. He refused to take anything more from than it was, and it was a very small amount that, that they paid him. Um, and he refused to take anything more. People would come to him with Nadavis. Now, this is true. They say this about the Briskarov as well. Uh, it's well known that the Briskarov also lived in what we would call abject poverty in Yerushalayim. Uh, and of course, it was, a, it was a stop that all young, brilliant people like, like Bishol Azolti and others would come in Yerushalayim to this small little home of Rabbi Yitzchok Zev Salavechik. It's very well known that people would come there to learn by him. Anyhow, uh, it was also well known that if people would come and see the, the, uh, the poverty and the, the, the how uh, meager his home was, they would want to try to upgrade it, and he refused to take any money. Now, he gave two reasons that Briskarov did. One reason was, was that um, he was a rov in Brisk, and he would only take money from people that had, had a connection to Brisk. But the real reason was he was so choishish from Gezel. What was he choishish for? He was choishish that the money that people were giving him, the people had not earned it properly. He was, again, this is sort of an insulting thing to say, <laughs> but it's 100% true that he would only take Nadovas from people that he knew on his own were totally menuka megezel, that, there's, that therefore there's no way that he should be nene. I want to... Sh- that is, and that's a beautiful Litvisha Mahalach. The Chesidisha Mahalach is the opposite. And I'll explain why. And that was what Rav Meisha Klerus said. He said that I'm the Goslin if I take from you. Not because, because you're giving it to me because you think I'm a Talmud Chochem. I'm not. I'm not a Talmud Chochem. So it's, I'm Chesha to take it from you. I can't take it because I'm not the person you think I am. Whereas with, with the Briskarov, it was. <laughs> you're not the person that you think you are. And with Rav Meisha, it was the opposite. And therefore, he lived <laughs> so if Yom of Mamish would not be, even when there were various uh, health considerations, and he had to move out of Tveria, and he had to find other apartments, and the doctors told him, and Nebuch, he, ne- he didn't live to be 60, so he was soibel from Machlis Nebuch, as it was there in, in, in Eretz Yisrael in, in that period, but even when he, he, he went to, uh, he had to move out of town um, and they had to find a dira for him. 
and they they had to take funds from the yeshiva to find a dira for the rishishiva who'd been the rishishiva there, uh, who was the rishishiva there for over thirty years. He he said, I can't take money. I know that this is you're saying this is the way the yeshiva continues. I made a nether not to take a cent from the yeshiva. The yeshiva is holy. That even though this allows me to continue and I need to live someplace and I can't live there unless I have some funds to be able to live in this area outside of Tveria, he was he was Bezdin to be Matir and Neder in order to be able to 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 be Nene from the hektish, as it were. Um, I want to tell you one more story before I get to the Psalkim, and I think it's an incredible story. Um there was an, you know, chassidim are very different than the Litvisha world when it comes to Erevin. Uh, when it comes to Erevin, uh, and part of it is, uh, uh, you know, you can see that in the in in in, in the Sefer Chofetz in the Mishnah Bura. you can see the Mishnah Bura's, and and I would say it's it's a very brilliant essay-like description of of the Rishonim who tell you that the areas in many big metropolitan places. Don't have a din of a Carmelis. They have a din of Rishus Harabim Mamish. Now that means that you can't just set up um, your normal type of mechitzas because if it's a true Rishus Harabim, so your normal, even your Tzuras Pesachs and other things might not work. Small streets might be different. Big streets might be right. And the Chassidim in general were more makel in Erevin. Um, they felt, uh, and it's not that they didn't understand the halacha. They felt a halachic imperative to create Erevin where they could. Now, the Chazanish is, is an incredible ex- exception because it's the Chazanish's Psokim that really opened the way it, 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 for Erevin to be constructed in many places. And it's really the brilliance of the Chazanish. Anyway, the point is, is that Chassidim in general uh, were, were, had Erevin in all their cities and all their towns. And they were proponents of Erevin even in large metropolitan areas. Now, Tveria was not a large metropolitan area at the time, and it had an Erev. And the Erev was really, um, uh, it was developed by the Sfardi Rov of the city. Um, I think it's Rabbi Yaakov Zarahon, who was the Sfardi Rov of the city. They was the... The um, Rav Yaakov Chayzerion was uh, the one in charge of the Eruv. Uh, they came to uh, him as Rav of Shtot, and of course, then he davened in the in the city, and he had to assume the the mantle of being the Rav of the city. Uh, and a number of young people came to him and said and explained to him how the Eruv is possible. They uh, they said based on the way they know from Ilchas Eruvin, this we shouldn't be caring here, and the Rav has a chiyuv. To make a clap and say that the that the Erev is possible. Um, he said, "Look, don't say." Anything. He said, "The Erev's kosher." Um, I but I can't be mine and, and explain to you now why. But uh, I will get back to you. But there's no shaila. Everyone should still be caring with the Erev. The next day. Rav Moshe went to Rabbi Yaakov, the uh, the Sfardi Rov, 
and um, said, you know, I've got a very difficult Shiloh. Maybe you can help me with it. Of course, this was a little bit unique that he should come to him in this way. And he said, you know, I, I have this difficult sugi I'm trying to work on. You know, I'm not feeling so well lately. Maybe you could help me with it. So they, for hours, they opened up the Gemara and Ayurvin. They learned up the sugi. They took out the, uh, the, the, the Paiskim. And Rabbi Yaakov Chai realized as he was learning with them that he had made a mistake that there had been a toast that he had made in his understanding of the Gemara and the Rishonim, and the actual practical Eruv that had been put up was halachically invalid. And he said, hey, he said, you know, uh, they probably spoke to each other in Ivrit or in Lashon HaKodesh. So he said, you knew this is, but he says, yes, I did. He said, so why didn't you say anything? So he said, look, Tveria, is a Carmelis, the cities, the, the area here. If it's a, not a kosher Erev, it's a Darabonon. So what's happening? People are being over a Darabonon Bishoyigit. Or even if they know, I told them to do it. It's a, the worst is, is an Isra Darabonon. But Kavad Atayra is a Daraisa. Kavad Atayra is a Mitzvah and Atayra. If I would have said anything, it would have been a Bizoyan and Tayra, Bizoyan and you, and a Bizoyan and Tayra itself. That is, uh, again, think about that. If you could hear this, that happening in what we would call, you know, the typical Litvisha, Haredisha, Nanxidisha world. The idea to, to, to actually allow people to carry. Of course, it's only a showgate. They don't know. But even the people that do know, it's not really, right? Because the, the, the worry of COVID-19. And that gives you, I think, a little bit about who he was uh, and what sort of place he was. Now, uh, Alicia was asking me about Rav Cook. Rav Cook writes about him uh, in a letter that um, he signed in 1914. Uh, there was a, uh, a very important trip that was taken by Rav Cook, who at that point was not yet uh, the chief rabbi of, of, of Eretz Yisrael. He was still the Rav and Yafo. And he was joined on this trip by Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld. And it was a very famous trip because uh, in this trip, there was also um, uh, Rav Cook's Talmud, Rav Harlap was on that trip, uh, as well as a number of other Rabbonim who decided that they needed to, um, it, was actually, it was actually the winter of 1913 when they went, um, there were a number of Rabbonim uh, that went on this group trip to visit the Moshavot. I guess this would you would call this the Aliyah uh, Ashniyah. I'm not sure exactly if it's the second or the third Aliyah. I'm not sure how you, you, you navigate that. But clearly these, these towns and communities were opening up. There was farming. There was, uh, there was, it was almost like the Wild West out there. Of course, you had the major cities where you had Rabbonim. But here the Rabbanim were going to go to be Machazik and to see what was happening. And there is a record that we have. I can, I'm showing you the book here. It's called Ela Masai, which is really a, 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 a description of, and you can see Rav Cook and Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld on the cover. And uh, they were the leaders of the trip. And Rav Cook, of course, had heard about Rav Meisha. He heard about the yeshiva uh, in, uh, in Tveria, 
But when he came there with this group that, that traveled, um, he was so incredibly impressed by him. Uh, the type of Kabbalah's punim uh, that they received there, the speaking and learning. In fact, if you, if you read about the notes of how the trip went and the descriptions of the trip, Rav Kook was, Rav Kook was the, the, who came there and spoke in learning, and spoke with all the chevra and the yeshiva, gave a shir there in between Minach and Mariv, and Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonnefeld, who was uh, obviously the rav of the of the Haredish, uh community in 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 Yerushalayim, the Avbezdin, as it were, um, was also a speaker. They they were there together, uh, and Rav Yosef Chaim. I, it's interesting, seems to have been delegated to the Baal, the Baldrush, <laughs> and Rav Kook was the one who actually would speak in learning there, and Rav Kook gave shiurim. And it was there, I think, that Rav Kook on that trip was able to spend time with, uh, with Rav Mesha. Now, it was clear they did not see eye to eye on things. Rav Mesha did write, and he said, I'm going to join you. On the, I want to go. I want to continue with you on, on some of these visits. And he took time out from his learning to go. And the reason he did that was because he felt that and he was similar to Rav Cook in this way. He says, we have to view the people that are building these communities, these farmers, these chalutzim. We have to realize that they aren't, they aren't Rishoyim at all. In many ways, they're Shogagim, they're Anusim, and they don't know. And we've got to show them the Derech HaMelech. And what's the Derech HaMelech? The Derech Malcho Shalolim. So in that way, he had a, a tremendous ava and feeling towards Klal Yisrael, similar to Rav Kook. Um, what separated them, honestly, and Rav Kook re- refers to him in the most incredible language. He calls him, you know, a, you know, a Sinai v'Eker Harim and a Bonan Shel Kedoshim, Boki Bachadre Atayra. Rav Kook understood who he was. He understood that he had his father-in-law's Askam Smicha, but they differed very much on. Um, connection to the, uh, you know, for example, the, the, uh, Rav Claris fought that, that the Tveria community should in no way receive funds from um, the Mizrachinists, the Mizrachi or anyone like that. Um, he wanted complete independence. Uh, the, of course, if there were tzedakahs coming in, that's fine. But when it turned out that uh, they wanted to issue a, 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 the, the, whether it was the joint or the committees, they wanted to have a situation where the monies would be collected from Europe and America, and it would be sent derech, uh, let's say, the Mizrahi. Rav Claris was completely against that. And he said, I'm not going to allow that to happen. We're not going to take money that way. And if if you if you insist, he said, "Look, I won't be Rosh Hashiva anymore." He said, "Look, I can definitely work. The the buses already had started there. <laughs> I could work in the uh, at the bus station. I could be one of the. I can be a saval." He was very, he wrote letters uh, against what he thought was the intrusion of secular of the secular world into Tveria. He wrote about the terrible Chilul Shabbos that that ripped his heart. He did not believe, I, I will be honest, although 
again, I'm going to talk a second here about his important sefer, and I'm going to read a little bit of his tshuva here in that sefer. Um, he was against the Heter Mechira, uh, and he felt it was it was wrong on many halachic grounds. So in those ways, uh, there's obviously quite a difference between the two. Um, and, you know, uh, he shared with Rav Kook, however, a love of Chochmas Hasoid. Uh, Rav Moshe felt that if you're learning, your psak, your understanding is not aligning with the Yisoidus of Kabbalah, then there's something wrong with your learning. So in many ways, there was a, a, a commonality between them. There was, the, uh, on the other hand, you know, Rav, Rav, uh, Rav Claris, Rav, Rav Misha, took a firm stand against what we would call some of the connections to uh, to the Medina, although there was no Medina yet at that time. Um, it's interesting, I'm going to contrast a little bit, uh, when he was asked about the Balfour Declaration, um, he refused to to be, you know, to to, to be super besimcha about it. <laughs> he said, look, um, you know, if this is really, if this is the beginning of the Geula, he said, we had such a schwer golas, is this what the beginning of the guru is going to look like? A little document like this? Um, and and, and, and it, it, again, in some ways, it's similar to Rav Kook's atzal, because Rav Kook also discounted, you know, he, he said, okay, England, okay, you have a big source. <laughs> uh, Rav Claris was, was, was worried that perhaps, you know, England was just playing games. And that was one part of him. And if they weren't playing games, he felt it was. He felt the tsar that Nebuch, This is the way. That, is this? Does this really mean the ghoul is happening in such a such a weakened way? So, I, I believe there were subtle and important differences between the two. And if you, if I would have to say which camp he was closer, he was more closer to Rabbi Yosef Chaim than he would be to Rav Cook. But Rav Cook felt an affinity towards him, and especially because both of them worked in this area, which is to create and to dedicate themselves to collating and organizing the laws of Eretz Yisrael, mitzvahs hatuyas baaretz. As he was dying, Rav Moshe, and he, you know, again, he didn't live till 60, was still working night and day as when he could, and the doctors had to stop him for writing his sefer. The, the first volume came out in his lifetime, which is an encyclopedic compendium of all the mitzvahs. Now, of course, similar work had been done by the famous student of the Vilna Gaon, the Pasa Shulchan, Rabbi Yisrael of Sklov, but it needed to be expanded. Rav Meisha understood that life in Eretz Yisrael was going to get stronger and stronger, and how to keep Trumas, Maestras, how to keep especially Hilchashvias was very important to him. And he, he wrote really a masterpiece, which is quoted consistently with people not even knowing who he is, <laughs> the Teiros Haoretz. Um, and uh, he wrote it and he kept on working on this Sefer till his dying day, because he said, I'm doing this not for myself, I'm doing this for the Teiros Haboyim. There's going to be a, a, an expansion of life in Eretz Yisrael that's going to be so great, they're going to need to have a uh, a place to at least start from. And it's quite interesting that he wrote a Sefer that in many ways 
has a fundamentalist aspect to it. And yet he was a person of so little ego. I want to talk about one of his, the pieces, and I'm going to put it up here on the, on the board for you. Aquinas wrote the Sefer Teiris Aonis in not a question and answer way. But Rav Clarice's Sefer answers a lot of crucial questions about Hilchis Tuyes Ba'oritz. And it demands the reader to follow him on his explorations, his examinations, which are very, very straightforward. A question that comes up often is if a person has Peirois Shvius, and whether it's fruit that is rotting because it's or it's getting so soft and squishy, or it's bread that is getting stale. And it's before the Zmana Bir, which of course is another time when all the uh, peros of Shri has become usher, depending on what it is and when in the field it can no longer be, it's no longer being consumed by the wild animals. But before that time, what should one do with peros that are sitting there on the counter or in the refrigerator, or wherever they are, and they are clearly not in the shape they used to be. They are, or bread that is becoming stale. We know Peres Shviyas have a Kedusha. Is that, does that Kedusha result in special dinim in terms of how you're supposed to treat the Peres? We know that there's an Isra being mafsid Peres Shviyas. hefset. But what happens when the the item in question is still technically edible? What happens then? So Rev. Moshe Claris deals with this question in his examination of what is the mitzvah connected to Perushvius. He quotes the famous Ramban in the Hasogos, where the Ramban says there is a mitzvah that the Rambam forgot which is the mitzvah chivos peirashviris, because it says, yilachem l'ochlo. L'ochlo means, seemingly, that there is a mitzvah to eat them. And as many uh, have pointed out, that that seems to be the position, this Ramban, understanding of the Ramban, seems to be position of some of the great early achronim, um, and uh, one uh, that seems to indicate that there is actually a kiyum, at least of mitzvah, of eating peiroi shviyas. Now, Rav Kleris, when he uh, deals with this question, mentions the Mishnayos first. The Mishnayos says that there is, that is nitna l'achila, the peiroi's, that language of the Mishnah and Shviyas and Perakhes is very similar to the language that is used in Meiser Shani and Trumas. Now we know when it comes to Truman and Meiser Shani, there is a mitzvah. The language seems to indicate on the surface that what's true for Truman and Meiser Shani would be true by Shviyas. Now even though the Mishnah says that yeser alav, 
Truma Omaiser Sheni. The Truma Omaiser Sheni has something over, or actually it says, Kal Mehen Shvius, Shenitna Lahadlokas Haner. If Clara says, does that mean that you can't eat it? On one end, you could say, well, if, why does it say that the kula is you can use it for firewood? You could use it to stuff in your potbelly stove to create fire and heat your house. Why doesn't it say that unlike Meister Shani and Truma, there's no mitzvah to eat it? Now, Rav Claris understands that it's not such a strong proof, he says, because, well, you could say we're only talking about the things that you're allowed to do, not the mitzvahs involved. However, he says the fact that you can throw it into the fire, and it seems like you can throw it into the fire, even if it's still edible, that's what it seems like, that seems to indicate that you don't have to eat perashviyas. And therefore, what does the Ramban mean when he says there's a mitzvah? So here, Rav Claris uses a principle that we find in many other mitzvahs, which is that even though there's no mitzvah chiyuvit, there's no mitzvah that you are mechuyiv to eat perishviyas, you are mechayim a mitzvah by eating perishviyas. Im oichel mechayim mitzvah. So therefore, the Torah allows you to take something which, although is edible, the Torah allows you to throw it into the fire. So even though you could have eaten it and enjoyed it, that's not necessarily considered a, uh, a bittel of a mitzvah because you just lost out the possibility of being mekayim a mitzvah. Now, that is a lot different than, let's say, our case, where the, the bread is getting staler and staler. The peach is getting softer and squishier and, and uh, the, the banana, <laughs> it's chayiv and trees, the banana is, all, is, is, is having more and more black spots. You're not throwing it, you're throwing it into the garbage. You're basically crushing it. You're throwing it in the garbage and where it's going to be put in a trash compactor. Are you allowed to do that? Rav Claris quotes a Yershalmi, which is also with Teisefta, which is quoted by two other uh, Gedele Yisrael who deal with this issue, the Chazunish and Rav Kook. The Yershalmi says that you're not mechaiv to eat bread that is going stale to the point that it's almost losing the tzura of bread. So you could see, and this is a diuk that is also um, uh, implied by the Chazanisha and Rav Kook. It says, Ein mechaiven, which means that let's say the bread is fresh, perhaps there is a chiv to eat it. Um, this, again, if this is true, that you're chayiv to eat perushviyas, then there would be no heter of being able to use it in your stove if you're chayiv to eat. So, Although, you know, the Chazanish, when he saw this Yishalmi, said, you know what that Yishalmi means? Yishalmi just means that if it's in a state where it's not really um, a, the type of, uh, uh, it isn't that edible, you have a right to feed your animal with it. That's what it means. Ein mechaiven lecho. Meaning, you have a right at this point 
to say that, you know what, even though it started as human food, I can now feed it to animals. Even though you really, there is no chiv to eat, but the point is you don't have to treat it like an ochil for humans. You can already assume that's an ochil for animals. That is what um, uh, Rav, the Chazunish says. Rav Kook, on the other hand, has a problem with this terminology. He says that either it means there is a chiv to eat normally, uh, which doesn't apply here when the food is not so edible, or what it means is, you know, this, this term, it says a similar term by Truma, and it could be that's it's just derech agav that this term is used, but really it isn't relevant for shvius. That is the possibilities that Rav Cook deals with. Um, it's interesting that Rav Claris has another uh, interpretation. It doesn't fit so beautifully in the words, but basically what he says is, what he thinks it means is this. Based on his principle that you can be makayim a mitzvah by eating perishvius. What this means is, is that when it's no longer a food that's in the state that most people would enjoy eating it, where it's now in something called you could force it into your mouth and chew it and get it down. Once it's in this stage, meaning that you could actually actively throw it away. When it's a edible item, you could put it into the pot belly stove. You could eat it. You have a heter to use it. But you would be, it would be also for you to just throw it away and put it in the trash compactor. But once the food becomes, again, not like the Chazanish, who's machai of you to find animals to give it to, or to just let it sit there and just leave it alone, that would be the Chazanish's approach. Rav Clara says that you'd be allowed to actually feed it, you're actually allowed to throw it away. Once it's become something that is not normally eaten by people, the type of thing that most people would not want to eat. So at, at this point, the Isser of Hefzid doesn't apply. But if it's not the type of thing that most people would eat, then you could really throw all of these away. You don't have to find any animals for it. You don't have to leave it to rot. I believe this is a very important kula, and it's based on Rav Claris's analysis of the, uh, the Mishnah and the Yerushalmi. I mentioned before that he was a chosid. What's interesting is, is that um, he was the Rebbe of Rabbi Avram Weinberg the second, the um, the great grandson of the first Slonim Rebbe. He was hired and came to, to his his first prominence as Rabbi Avram Weinberg's uh, teacher. It was from that position that he grew to become the Rosh Hashiva of, of, of the yeshiva that, that had, uh, was the glory of Tveria, and was from then that he became Thorov of 
the city, a position that he refused to, as we said before, not only to take funds from the joint and from the, from the, the people that we would call Zionist types of distribution, he also refused to become the official rov in a way that he was listed in the, in, in the British uh, archives. He said, Tveria doesn't need to have an official rabbi, a rav that was from the community. He felt that this was, in a way, a politicizing that type of rabbonis. As I said, it all began with his being noticed as, as, as a modest, incredibly gifted scholar. His prize student rose to the chair of Rabista, because when his father died, he became the Rebbe, Rabbi Avram Weinberg, the son of Rebbe. His father died in 1916, and now the one who had been his teacher so many years earlier considered himself a Talmud, in a sense, a Chassid to a Rebbe. There have been other Chassidish Apoiskim who have been Rebbes. This was a Chassidish Arav in Paisik who considered himself a Chassid to the end. He refused when Rabbi Avram Weinberg came to him uh, to do anything except stare with his face down. He refused to sit down in his presence. He gave him the ultimate, utmost covet. As much as Rav Weinberg wanted to treat him as a, as a Rebbe almost, or as a, at least as a friend, Rav Kleris retreated and said, no, he is, he is a total Talmud. Rav Avram Weinberg told his other Hasidim, he said, this man cannot be changed. Um, He's, he's tough. He's going to stay the way he is as much as I would like him to, to be Mesiachas to me, like an equal. He, he refuses. He continues to view me as his superior, as, as his total bottle to me. He said, you see, it's all my father. My father was able to speak with him and turn him into the quintessential Chosid. And in that way, he joins other incredibly gifted scholars and Rabbonim whether it was of Menachem Zemba uh, um, and others, uh, the, the Rabbi Yosef Engel, who, even though they were Rabbonim, they still considered themselves Hasidim. And in that way, they, the type of his Nasus that we sometimes see in other Paiskim really does not, it's not evidenced in the writings of Rav Moshe. Like other great Rabbonim in Poiskim, the Rebbe understood that that Chosid, and Rabbi Avram, of course, understood that his, his teacher remained a Paisik. When the Suanim Rebbe, the new one, Rabbi Avram, uh, had already, it was already, uh, it was in 1929, he'd been the Rebbe already for 12, 13 years. He came to um, um, Tveria with a number of his chassidim, and it was on Shavasa Betamus. A certain uh, Yerushalmi, Slonimer Chosid, um, came to the Rebbe, and they asked, he told the Rebbe that um, 
it was difficult for him to be fasting today. He's, he said that uh, he feels very weak and he wanted to know, does he need to fast? The Rebbe said, I might be the Rebbe, but the Pesach is here. You should ask the Rav of Tveri. You should ask the Rav Meisha. Rav Meisha heard the young man describe his situation, how weak he was feeling. And he said that, I hear your question. I'm going to, I have to go and, and, and be ma'ayin in Shulchan Aruch. And he left the young man sitting there. After a number of minutes, he came out of the room, went into the hallway where the young man was, and he said, I told you to be ma'ayin in Shulchan Aruch, come. And he showed him in his kitchen a fully set table with plates, dishes, and hot food waiting for this young man to come and eat. That was the Shulchan Aruch. The idea, yes, to, to and you can see here that he was deferred to as the Paisek, but like many chassidim before him, he understood that the, the, his, his leiv and regesh was for humanity, human beings. One of his most famous statements was that it's much, much easier for someone to reach a madrega that he could say nishmas kolchai with the greatest lavos that shakes to the core of his very being. But it's much, it's easy compared to living a life where you don't take a pruta from another Jew without permission. It's easy to come into a situation where you believe that you've reached Madregas and be overwhelmed by that. But to be aware of your, what you're doing, being aware of how you could trample and take from others, that is a big Madrega. That's the Madrega that a person needs to work for. He needs to work through his own Aveda till his type of understanding of the other's hashivus. That is the quintessential chassidisha pleisik. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 